you're new to the series, maybe this is your first week or you're coming along, maybe first time at King's. Um, we've, we've just been walking through some big questions. How do you know? Then we did, how did we get here and talked about the plausibility of God? Then what's possible? Or do you believe in miracles? And then talked about the possibility of miracles. Then last week was a big one. We did what's wrong with the world. And the conclusion that we came to, which was also the same conclusion really that the people on the video and most people naturally would come to, is that the problem with the world is really human evil and natural evil, or what Christians would call sin and death. And that that was sort of a a way of summarizing, in a way, the problem with the world. This week, what we're going to do is say, what's the solution? Which is really saying, if that's the problem, what sort of solution might there be? And so that means there's going to be, hopefully, a slightly more optimistic, sunny, upbeat, positive flavor to the message. And also, that there's going to be a bit of the Bible in it as well, which will be great for those of us who are thinking, where is this book of which we speak? Um, It's going to be, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. And you can turn there now, if you like. We'll be in there in a few minutes' time to look at a a, a Christian take particularly on what the solution is to the world's problems. But the way we're going to do it, I want to do it in three steps. And to start really that step one, what's the solution to the world's problems? Step one is to say a solution to the world's problems, if it existed, would have to look like this. Then step two is, if it has to look like this, what options are there? And I think there's actually only one that is even attempting to do that. And then step three is to say, how would we know whether that story was even true? So step one, a solution would have to look like this. Step two, if so, then there's only one option available, whether whether it's true or not. Step three, so how would we know if it was true? That's where we're going. And uh, start with really what a solution to the world's problems would look like. And on the screen is going to appear a sort of summary of the problem that we had from last week, looking together at the issues of sin and death. And if, I guess your, your, your answer, what's the solution, will depend on what you think the problem is. So if you think the problem is small, then the solution can be fairly small as well. So if you think that the problem with the world is people don't know enough, and that's a big thing, but it's actually quite easy to solve. You say, well, education is the answer. Or the problem is there's not enough food. Then farming or science or something is the answer. Um, But if the problem with the world is huge, if the problem with the world is human evil and natural evil or sin and death, that's a huge problem and it's not going to be solved by nibbling around the edges with education or science or whatever it might be or psychological care for people or some of the examples that are good that came on the video. One of the things that struck me as I heard them though was, well, last week the problems you guys were talking about were massive. And the solutions you're proposing are just much too small. Natural law theory is not going to solve this problem. It's too big. And so what happens is we rightly diagnose the problem, and then we hope that the solution is very small in comparison. And I think that actually we just need to face up to the reality that the problem in the world is big, and therefore that the solution also needs to be huge. So we have the problem of human evil and natural evil, sin and death, if you like. And if we are going to engage with those, then we've got four things which will need to happen in response, I think, which are the only ways that you can deal with sin and death like this. So if you're going to deal with human evil properly, one of the things you're going to need is to deal with all past evil, and then you're going to need to deal with future evil as well. Past evil, you need forgiveness. That's one thing you will have to have. The issue of forgiveness, if you are going to deal with human evil and solve the world's problem, because if you don't have forgiveness, then all of the things that have happened until now, the legacy of them will continue to hurt you in the present and the future. 
So there must be, if the world's problems are to be solved, there must be globally forgiveness of some kind. There also must be, I think, you'd, what I would call transformation or change or something. But transformation where that's not about the, the past, that's about the future. Because if you have forgiveness for past sins or evils, but everyone's still doing bad things, you're not really any better off because you're still continuing to do all the things that you do that are wrong now, and you're still in a mess. So actually, you need forgiveness for the past and transformation for the future. Otherwise, human evil cannot be dealt with. Now, you might not use those words, but I think something like that's got to be in there. And immediately, as soon as I see those two words, I'm thinking, there is no way that any human being can do that. I can't provide forgiveness for the world. I can, at best, forgive people who have sinned against me, but I can't forgive you for something that you did to sin against someone else. That's just not my place. And I can't transform the world either with a wonderful new moral idea. Many have tried. They've all failed. Many of them are good. They've still not worked at transforming the human heart. And we'll see a little bit of why in a few minutes. So we're going to deal with human evil, sin. We've got to have forgiveness. got to have transformation. And that's only going to come from God, if anywhere. If there is a God. And then you've got exactly the same is true of natural evil. You've also got a double whammy of things you have to engage with, with the fact that there is death in the world. Because there is death, we need not just to, uh, as some religions have, I guess, and you know, Islam would be like this, that you die, but your soul escapes to paradise. But that's not a solution in the end to the problem. What it at best is saying, the, the problem is so bad we can't fix it, so we'll escape and do something else. You need, if you're going to have a solution to the problem of death, you don't just need escape, you need resurrection. You need resurrection of the body. You need death to be undone. You need life to win. You need bodies that have died to be reanimated and brought back to life again. And then for everybody to live in bodies that cannot be destroyed, cannot corrupt, cannot be age, cannot age or decay or rot in any way. You need a new kind of humanity. And you might think, that sounds sci-fi. Sounds like bionic people, X-Men, superheroes. But actually, if, you were, if we were honest, how does a world with, without death look like, with, if it's still got human beings, human beings need to be not subject to the power of death at all. And while we're at it, I think you also need resurrection for the world. Because if you don't, just got resurrection for the body, we're all fine, but the world is still decaying and going wrong. Actually, you need a resurrected universe, a resurrected world as well. And that sort of sketch of those four things is such a huge solution that a great many people might say it's never going to happen. But those four things, I think, if you start with human evil and natural evil are the problem, then those four things are the solution. They're the, all solutions must involve some combination of those four. That's big. So what's the solution? Well, it would have to involve forgiveness, transformation, and resurrection. And if that is what the solution would look like, what options are available? And the answer might surprise you, because actually, there's only one. There's only one belief system, Judeo-Christianity, in the world that would say that those four things can or will happen. I don't think there's any other. I've I've tried to check that that's true. I've never heard of another one that isn't Judeo-Christian that believes that forgiveness and transformation and resurrection of the body and the world will all happen. I don't think anybody believes that except Jews and Christians. People who worship Israel's God. No one else thinks it's true. Muslims don't. Buddhists don't. Hindus don't. Sikhs don't. Secular people certainly don't. 
In other words, if you are going to say that the solution to the world's problems of sin and death is something we're going to cling on to and hope can happen, your only hope is Judeo-Christianity. There's nowhere else to go. Because no one else believes those things, no one else even claims those things happen, even if they're wrong. Right? We might be wrong. We'll look at how we know at the end of this message. But Christians might be wrong. But the reality is, if you, do, if you think we are, you've really got nowhere else to place your hope on some of these issues. And so here is the most influential Jewish Christian writer of them all, the Apostle Paul, describing how he sees those four things as happening. This is Paul... If you don't know the book of Romans, or you've never read it before, it's a letter Paul wrote that is most regarded as his greatest letter. And Romans chapter 8 is the high point chapter in the middle. It's the, one of the greatest chapters ever written by a Christian. And we're going to read it in a, in a minute. And as we go through it, we'll see that forgiveness and transformation and resurrection are all in there in his description of the kind of solution that God is bringing to the world's problems. So we'll begin where he begins with forgiveness. Slightly discourteously, Paul didn't write them in the same order as my message outline. He put them in a different order because he hadn't read my message outline. But I'm going to forgive him that, and I trust that you will as well. But firstly, forgiveness. Romans 8.1. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a statement of categorical forgiveness for all who are in Christ. The condemnation that you should have had, and so should I, for the things we've done has been dealt with and abolished in Christ Jesus. Because, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, that's the old evil bit of us, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God didn't just say, oh, well, I'm just going to leave it. I'm just going to forget about it. He said, no, I'm going to condemn sin, but I'm not going to condemn sinners. That's an amazing step in the history of the world. I'm going to condemn sin in Jesus, but not condemn sinners if they trust in Christ. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, yes, do you have forgiveness in Christianity? Yes, like this. That the sin is kind of boiled down and condensed onto the person of Jesus who carries it in his body and dies for it. And because he does, sin is condemned and sinners go free. That's in there. Forgiveness is in there. Secondly, resurrection of the body is in there. Jump down to verse 10 and we read this. Resurrection of the body. If Christ is in you... Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's what he's saying. If you are in Jesus and Jesus died and then got raised to life, then you, having died, will also be raised to life as well. Because you're in him. You, something has happened to you as a result of trusting in him that's made you kind of part of him, one with him. And that means that what happens to him, death and resurrection, happens to you as well. That's what he's saying. Although the body's dead, so now you're still living in a body that's going to die. But actually you know that the spirit who has been given to you, God, the personality of God himself inside, will bring life after death to you in your mortal body. So we're not simply saying, you will one day escape off to paradise. He's saying, no, your body's going to come back to life as well. 
Resurrection of the body is written into the fabric of Christianity. You can't be a Christian and not look to the day when you will be raised as Jesus had been raised. That's bound up with the, with the whole of the Christian faith. So if, and this is a big if, if Jesus is alive, then you and I as believers will also be made alive with him in the future. So you have forgiveness, tick, and you have resurrection of the body, tick. Thirdly, you have transformation. Next verse, eight twelve. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That's the old evil you. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Right? That's, so the old, you live the old way. That's not going to do you any good. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he's saying a transformation is possible because of what God has done in and through Jesus. Because it is now possible to put to death the old you and to live according to the new one. Not perfectly so, one day you will, but it's possible to live daily in the new reality of a new creation you, not like the old one. You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, or we could read sons and daughters of God. The Holy Spirit will lead you and you will follow him and live a different sort of life. Next page. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the first word that a baby would say in Israel. Now, in our, in our culture, babies, they don't know what Dada and Mama are, and whichever one gets there first, the parent thinks they've won, Right? That's what happens in that. Baba. Oh, he said Dada first. He's like, he didn't really. He was just, doesn't know what he's saying. But in, in Israel, that would be Abba. It's the, very, it's the baby word for the father. We cry that to God. Like my son, God willing, in the next few months, is going to say something that sounds like Dada. He's six months old. When he does, he's basically saying, he's not, he doesn't even understand what he's saying. But he's basically, I don't really know anything about this world, but I know you're my dad. That's what Christians do. We, we murmur and we go, Abba, oh gosh, he is my father. I don't understand the rest, but I know that he is mine and I am his and he loves me. And that's something Paul says, that, that transformation from slaves to sons or daughters happens through Jesus. The spirit is given to us and then he says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So transformation is written into the heart of Christianity as well, from slaves to sons and daughters, striving to security. If you're, a, if you're a slave in his thinking, you say, you're somebody who has to work in order to secure their status. If you're a son or a daughter and God has abolished slavery, he then says, no, you're not like that anymore at all. You are now someone who gets your meaning and purpose and value simply from the fact that you are my child. And that changes your attitude to everything. You move from striving to security. You move from self-assertion. You know the way sort of the, you know, young people, I'm going to impress myself on the world. I'm going to do, I've got to do things in order to make myself feel like I'm, I matter. And God's saying, you move from self-assertion to submission. Really, he's just saying, I don't need to prove I matter. God is my father. I can call him Abba. So I don't know who you think you are, but I'm not, I don't have to impress you, really, to justify my existence I can actually honor him in whatever way he sees fit because I don't need to prove anything. I can move, be transformed from flesh to spirits. I read over the summer 
Uh, this book, This is London, which is a book by Ben Judah, who's a, a journalist. Not a Christian book. It's, a, 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 it's actually a pretty dark look at the underside of London. He's, he's deliberately gone to all kinds of communities where things are really tough and hard and begun to really show you the London that doesn't appear in the travel guides. And it's a tough read, and there's some stories in it that are pretty horrific. Um, but he, d- he goes in and he sort of talks and spends lots of time with drug runners in Shepherd's Bush and then with Lithuanian prostitutes in Plaisto, I think, and with Afghans who have risked their lives to travel across from Afghanistan because they wanted to get to Neesden. And then they got to Neesden and they found it wasn't the city of blinding lights they hoped for, and now they find themselves empty and rejected and broken and everyone hates them. And with you know, some Somali communities where everything's really tough and with enslaved Filipinas who are working as maids, so Russian oligarchs who are married to women who are broken and desperate during the day. But I, and it, I mean, it doesn't sound like a barrel of laughs, and it isn't. It's a tough book to read. But as I was reading it, it, it occurred to me that almost all of these stories reflect the same reality, which is that human beings look for the right things in the wrong places. That, that actually, what he was telling was multiple stories. Doesn't There's a chapter on Catford Bridge, actually. Um, but it tells dozens of stories about different groups of people in London who are trying to find meaning and purpose and identity and security, which is a good thing that we should look for, but we're trying to find it in places that don't deliver. So why does a young person join a gang? They join a gang because they want to feel a sense of solidarity and security and safety and identity and purpose and meaning. And they find that in a gang, and actually they're looking for a good thing, just looking in the wrong place, and the place ultimately can't deliver. And the same is true for all of the communities that he describes in this book. And as I was reading to that, I thought to myself, yeah, we are looking for good things in bad places that ultimately kill us. But wouldn't it be great if someone could write a book called This Will Be London instead of This Is London? That one day London will be a place where that question, am I loved, am I meaningful, am I accepted, am I secure, where that question had already been given a categorical yes by the God who made them. What would happen then? Were that to be true? Were human beings, were the, the clumps of young people that you can see, sort of hoodies up, cigarettes out, like, scowling, brooding, and never allowed a smile, were instead they to know that they were loved and affirmed by the God who made them, and nothing they did would change that, the hoods might come down, the cigarettes might even come out, who knows, but they would certainly be able to smile, and they might be able to give their lives to looking at others and serving and honoring people made in God's image rather than feeling like I need to protect this identity I have because I don't need to get my identity from them or from even that world because I've got it from him because when he said you're mine and I'm yours, everything changed for me. And I'd love to write that book, This Will Be London. I didn't. I actually wrote a chapter on it called The Redemption of London in If God Then What the Book But because I was trying to get to the start of that. What would London look like if people were liberated from the need to feel like they could get their affirmation from the world around them and instead received it from God and just lived accordingly? And it would be a totally different kind of city. Hurt people hurt people. That's what happens here. Loved people love people. But actually, we have to start from the knowledge that we're loved if we're actually going to be able to love others. And so many of the problems we've been talking about in this series don't get solved unless God is revealed as your father. As you know, I don't have to be a slave to that anymore. I'm a child. And then fourth, so we've got forgiveness, resurrection of the body, transformation, and then fourth, resurrection of the world. This is the bit that has most people going, what? The resurrection of the world? This is where Paul goes. I love that he does. It's so good. For I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing. He's picturing the mountains and the rivers and the trees on tiptoes, waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, which is that creation is looking at Christians and saying, wow, I want to have what they've had. I want to have the liberty that has come to them in Jesus have to happen to us. And so he's obviously picturing creation like a person waiting. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Does does that characterize your life? This is a life of groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. That's what Paul says the Christian life is like. I am in here, I'm going, oh, so much brokenness, but I know that one day it gets good. But I wait for that day with patience and desperation. Wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that's seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. This picture is staggering. Paul is saying creation is like a woman in labor. Creation is like a woman in the pains of childbirth who is thinking, this world is so painful and so dark. <sighs> like, give me something to hold on to and bite. Like, gas and air. It's coming. And then the doctor's going, it's all right. It's all right, man. It's okay. It's okay. It's coming. It's, all right. it's okay. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Look, look, look. Here it is. Look. Look. And then she goes, oh, he's here. She's here. The new world that I have been waiting for my whole life is now upon us. And all of that pain and harrowing suffering I have been going through for all this time is somehow worth it when I see this new world that God has created out of my struggle. That's what childbirth is like. I've been there three times in, a, in the capacity as a spectator, as you may have gathered. <laughs> but actually, and at the end of my first, genuinely, that my first child was born, and Rachel had an agonizing 24 hours, and within probably seconds, certainly a minute or two of Zeke being born, she said, I could have 12 of those. That's actually what she said. Now, you might think, stupid woman, what's wrong with her? And she was, yes, high from the gas and air and all that. I get, I get that. But actually, that statement has really helped me understand what Paul is doing here. Because he's saying there is something about this new world coming out from inside the belly of the old, which is so beautiful that it will transcend all the sufferings we're in now. For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory. That's why he says it. He's saying we're like, that's, that's what women in, child, in labor would say when the child is born and delivers. And so he's saying the world itself, and not just the human body, but the world is going to be raised to a new kind of existence in which, as the prophet said, the trees clap their hands and the mountains burst forth in song and the rivers dance and the hills are overflowing with wine. That's the kind of world we're going to live in forever. It will look a lot more like Tuscany and a lot less like Croydon, with the greatest respect to anybody here who is from Croydon. So the, pr- the problem with the world is sin and death. And the solution to the world's problems, were it to exist, would have to involve forgiveness, transformation, resurrection of the body, and resurrection of the world. And if you are looking for that kind of solution, the only place, my friends, you will find it, is in Judaism or Christianity. Nobody else even claims it's true. Now, we might be wrong. We might be deluded. We might be pie in the sky. 
But if you are looking for hope, it's the only show in town. It doesn't mean it's true. It just means we should really want it to be true. So I will finish by asking, so how would you know if it was true? What's the test? Is there there a thing that you can identify for me that helps me see, all right, if that's true, then this story's right, and if it's not true, then the story's wrong? And the answer is yes, there is, and it's a very simple one, and it's as old as Christianity. The test is simply, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? That's the game. That's the game. It's the game. Logically, that would have to be true because if Jesus was still dead, then all our hopes of forgiveness, say, Jesus died for sins and stayed dead. Then I would look and think, well, how do I know God's forgiven me then? Jesus is transforming the world, but he's still dead. Well, it doesn't, I wouldn't put my confidence in a man who was dead to change anything. Resurrection of the body is true, but Jesus is still dead. I'd say, well, why didn't he rise then? Resurrection from the world, same question. But if Jesus is alive, then the answer to all four of those things is, yeah, I'd have great confidence that God had forgiven and was transforming and was going to work resurrection for the body and the world. Why? Because what's happened to, the, to Jesus will happen to me and to the world. So if that were true, if, the, if Jesus was alive, if the tomb was empty, if Jesus was alive, then the things I'm saying are the solution to the world's problems would have a very high chance of being true. And if Jesus was dead, they would have no hope of being true. And Paul himself actually said this in one of his punchiest ever, here's the difference between that view and that view statements. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, he said flatly, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so's your faith. That's the test. If Jesus is dead, we should all go home. I should be out of a job, so should all the pastors here. You guys have got better things to do with your day and you should go and do them now. But if Jesus has, as he then a few verses later, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, that makes the whole world a different kind of place. And that's what we're going to look at next week. And Steve is going to spend next Sunday looking at that question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he did, then the hope that we have, the hope that we've been talking about throughout this series, that forgiveness and transformation and resurrection may come, has got an enormous point in its favor. If Jesus is alive, the whole world is a different sort of place. And there is hope for the world that is as broken as we've seen it is. We're going to take a few questions now to see what's come in. We've got five. um, And then we're going to close in in prayer and have the band out in a few minutes. Okay, so. Do other faiths like Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims offer resurrection of the soul and the earth just through different methodology? I think the the answer here I'd give is I'd say actually no if you use the word resurrection in, in a in anything like a, a Christian sense. And the reason I say that is that resurrection is a word that refers to bodies. So I don't even think you can really talk about resurrection of the soul. I think what Muslims believe in, Jehovah's Witnesses are a little different because obviously they would still believe the Bible and they would have a very Christian sort of shape, though differing on the person of Jesus. But for Muslims, the, re, the, the, the resurrection would not be the right word because they would say actually the soul feel like leaves the body and goes to be in paradise. But resurrection is a word that means life coming back to physical bodies. And that is not something that Muslims believe in. And obviously, it's also not something that they believed happened to Jesus because they don't believe Jesus died on the cross either. So actually, the, the centerpiece of Christian belief, death and resurrection of Jesus, therefore, the death and resurrection of the world is not common to other faiths, uh, specifically Islam. Jehovah's Witnesses is, a bit, it, is in a slightly different category, but even there, they would have differences on how they understand uh, the eschatology of, of their faith as well, but certainly not for Islam. So uh, I, I don't actually think resurrection is the right word there, although I know what you mean. Um, next one. 
Why do we have to suffer because of original sin? Why would a forgiving God punish humanity for what two people did thousands of years ago? Yeah, um, I wouldn't have eaten the apple, would I? I've heard people put it that way. It's like, as in, I think the reason it it works if you would regard people as having done something that you would never have done. I think the Christian vision of the connection between me and the first humans is much stronger than that. So Christians... If you like, Christians don't see it as, um, if I take objects, you know, these, in fact, let's do that. These sheets of paper are not organically connected to each other at all. Apart from the fact that I've typed my message on them, they're not connected. If I scrumple up this one and burnt it, nothing would happen to these. If you think of the human race like that, you will not understand Christian view of the, of the soul or the person. But if you understand the Christian, Christian faith, sorry, the unity of humanity like a tree, it becomes a lot easier to understand. You say, actually, what I do to this bit of the tree does affect that bit. In fact, you could even say it's the same as what happens to a human body. We are organically connected, all of us. So what, some, what somebody does, does indirectly, and sometimes directly, affect what happens to me. And so if I, if I get, I don't know, I, well, I had a bicycle accident when I was 11, and I got stabbed in the side. I was four inches deep with the windscreen wiper. Went, I'm sorry, this is a grim story, but went in between my liver and my spleen. I won't show you the scar, but it's pretty unpleasant. And uh, I went four inches in. And if it had gone half an inch higher or lower, I would have been killed. So it's one of those miracle moments. Now, had I been killed, had I say I'd, I'd, it had gone into my spleen and I had gone into you know, heart failure and, so on and, and conked out, and then they come along with those electric pads and they try and resuscitate you, they would have put the electric pads here, not there. Right? I would have... Because they know that what's happened to this part of the body affects this bit. And, they, and if they had resuscitated me, I would have survived in spite of this injury. But this injury was really responsible for the reason I died in the first place, because I'm an organic whole. And what happens to one bit happens to us all. Now, in the, hum- the, the Bible pictures the human race like that. And actually, there's a justice to it that works in this way, that had you been there, you'd have done it too. Now, that's a difficult step. You don't, you, actually, but if you have ever been tempted to do something, to put yourself first and to prioritize your own immediate independence and power over your long-term happiness and joy. If you've ever had a tantrum, if you've ever, instead of resolving conflict immediately, you've stewed on it and nurtured it and gone, I want to be in charge, I want to be right, even if it makes me miserable, then you will acknowledge that you have done exactly what they did and that you are as guilty as they are and so am I. And that's the Christian vision of the, of the four, really. Let's do one more. Oh, maybe too. Romans 8 states that there is now no condemnation. Why then do Christians still need to ask for forgiveness? That's a great question. Because in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive us. So what's Jesus doing teaching us to ask for forgiveness? Doesn't he know that he's about to die and forgive all our sins? And the answer is yes. But maybe I could use this analogy. I'm sure you've got those people. You've heard this story before, used at weddings. But the guy who says to his wife, look, I told you I love you on the day we got married, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. Right? Maybe nobody's, I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but the reason why couples don't do that is because they want to continue living in the good of keeping short accounts and relational intimacy, even though, objectively, the reality they've testified to publicly is still true. I think the same is true if I was to say to Rachel on the day we got married, I forgive you now for anything you ever do that hurts me, I think our relationship would suffer if she took that to mean I just never need to apologize then. I actually think as soon as you see, instead of seeing God in a sort of courtroom way, you see God as in a relational 
part, marriage partner way, which actually the Bible often does, Christ and the church, like husband and wife. As soon as you do that, I think you think, but obviously relationships work that way. I don't have any fear when I go to God and say, Father, forgive me, but I've, I've bungled this. I shouldn't have done that. I was proud. I was wrong. I don't have any fear that God will say no. But I do it anyway, partly because I know he'll say yes. And I think that's the nature of healthy relationships, and it's certainly the nature of the Christian life. We've got one more. Why did Jesus, two more. Why did Jesus have to die in the way that he did? Couldn't God have found a kinder solution? Yeah, crucifixion's horrible. And you think about it, you think, why couldn't, if God become human, live to the age of three or four, and then die in their sleep, what would be wrong with that? Now, I don't, the Bible never actually asks that question as a thought experiment, but one of the ways I found helpful to think about it is this. If he had, and you were in a situation where you had experienced physical torture or betrayal or uh, you know, excruciating pain of any kind or sh- public shame, right, humiliation, you might legitimately turn to God and say, you don't know what it's like. But actually, you get a God who becomes human and does not just live as a person and then die, but they live as a person who lives under injustice and occupi- their territory is occupied by a foreign power. They live under oppression in the world they grow up in, and so does everybody else. They have to learn the same things you do. They graze their knee the same way you do. They have to go through teething problems and adolescence the same way that you do. And then they get betrayed by their best friend, and they get rejected by their entire village, and they get shamed and laughed at, and then they get stripped and publicly vilified and humiliated and have their back ripped to pieces by whips, and then they get nailed to a cross and left to die. No one could turn and say, you don't know what it's like. You might be able to say, this specific experience is different from yours. I I grant that. But I think every single type of human pain has been shared in some way by Christ the Savior. And because he has, because it has, we're able to say that cross does not just count for you, it counts for all of us. And that makes all the difference in the world, I think. Last one. How did one man's death, Jesus' death, pay the punishment for sins of the whole world? And here I think we enter like the mysteries of Christian theology, really. And at one level, you say, because the, the way that atonement, which is the Christian language for peace being made between God and man, works in the Bible, is in a representative fashion. So when the, the best example I can think of it is actually um, there was a, a song that we've just introduced as a church, which Leo's written, called uh, The Champion, the idea of Jesus, our champion has come. And the picture of champions in the ancient world is like David and Goliath. Or if you've seen the opening scene of Troy, where Brad Pitt goes out to fight on behalf of the, Trojan, uh, on behalf of the Greeks against the Trojans, what happens is one man goes out, and what happens to him then counts for everybody else. If he wins, the whole army wins. If he loses, the whole army loses and becomes slaves. That was common in ancient warfare, and that's what the champion language means, and that's what Christians have always believed about the work of God in Christ. They're saying he goes as a representative. So when he goes out on our behalf against sin and death and he wins, I don't have to do anything to lift a finger, but I win anyway because he stands for me. And again, this is actually connected to the point I made earlier about being stabbed here but resuscitated here. What happens to this part of the body happens to us all. And if Jesus, as the head of the human race, gets raised to life, so does everyone else as well. If his death covers, covers sin, it covers mine. I think that, that, to be honest, and it is mysterious. It's a difficult, it took Christian theologians hundreds of years to hammer out how it all works. So please don't think I'll fix it for you in 90 seconds. But I think it's probably worth recognizing that the relationship of human beings together is at the very heart of 
what Christians believe about the work of Christ and how it affects every one of us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this marvelous message of death and resurrection that deals with, once and for all, sin and death in the world and liberates us to enjoy the fruit of a world where everything has been transformed and forgiven and raised. Lord, we wait for that day. We wait for it, some of us, like women in labor, thinking, come on, God, when will it come? But Lord, knowing that it will and knowing that when it does, it will make up for all of the bad that has been suffered. We are so grateful for the gift of life in Jesus Christ and we We thank you for it and we ask that you would help us enjoy it and live in the good of it today and this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.